if you have your copies of God's Word, we are going to continue through the book of Acts, and we're going to begin in chapter 3 this morning. Reminding ourselves that last week we looked at what a healthy, vibrant church, whether it is large or whether it is small, is going to cultivate at least four things, which is going to be, let's see if I can get it here, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and uh, the scriptures. Yes. And with that going on, we are about to see them spill into the streets of Jerusalem. In fact, we're going to start by looking at verse 47 together so that we can kind of cross-pollinate the context here. And they were praising God and having favor, now depending on your translation, having favored with all people or towards all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were repenting and being saved. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going out to the temple at the ninth hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. And they used to set him down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg for charity, alms, of those who were entering the temple. When, they saw, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, I want you to grab that he noticed them, and he noticed them for a reason. He began asking to receive alms, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give him his attention, expecting to receive some money from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened, something a physician, Dr. Luke, would note for us. Verse 8, with a leap, very important word, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and, notice the word again, leaping, it's not there on accident, all right, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and leaping and praising God. And they were taking note of him because they know this man. They know him well. They took note of him being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would feast on your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would help me remember my studies. I pray that you would help me teach your word and your message alone. Guard my tongue. If it's going to say something true, free it. If it's going to draw away from your truth, bind it. I thank you for these people. Father, help me to love them the best way that I can. But above all else, Lord, I pray that I would meet your expectations. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, help us to see, help us to hear. Father, may we leave here in love with your Son, Jesus Christ, a little more. And so, Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Last week, we looked at four main components that every church, whether small or large, 
should have or seek to cultivate in order to have a healthy and vibrant community in where God reigns in our lives. We looked at how we must devote ourselves to, you remember the articles that were there, the scriptures, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. When a church, regardless of its size, whether big or small, cultivates these things, it will create biblical, healthy, and vibrant community, which, by the way, we talked about this, is one of the most powerful witnessing tools that the church has as its disposal to the community. People who love one another, people who are transformed, people who are studying the Word of God so that they might know who He is. My friends, if we want to have an effective witness outside these walls, then we must show that God has transforming power alive inside these walls. And may it be, if there is one thing that the community will say about this church, let it be that we desire to be the real thing. That that because we have been forgiven much, we love much and then spill into the streets of our world and bring that transforming, powerful good news to our community. In fact, that is exactly what we are going to see here when we walk into this text with Peter and John. They are literally spilling into the streets of Jerusalem and heading to the temple. In fact, last week we saw the words that said this, Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed together had all things in common. They were praising God and having favor towards all people. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. What we are about to see here today is, is last week's context being fulfilled. And that is exactly what we are going to see here We will see an example of what signs and wonders look like. We will see a healthy church spilling into the streets, having favor towards all people. And how the Lord added to their number because of the a lame, blind beggar. All right, not blind, I'm sorry. A lame beggar will find salvation. And in just a few verses from now, the church will grow by thousands. This one miracle by Peter will do two major things this morning. One, it will confirm that his teaching is authoritative and from God the Father. It also will provide an object lesson for what salvation looks like. All right, Everything that we are about to study this morning in these ten verses is to set up the sermon that Peter will speak that we will study next week in verses 11 through 26. Everything we see here is in many ways sermon preparation. Now, I've never experienced sermon preparation like this, but this is the context in which we see everything this morning. This is not primarily about the social conscience of the church, as important as that is, but primarily the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take a look at verses 1 through 5. And now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, from birth, was being carried along by his very good friends who did this every week, probably because they got a little cut of the money that he got whom they used to set down every day at this gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. It was the front gate of the temple, all right? When he saw Peter and John, which looked like a good mark, 
They had some money. About to go into the temple, he began to go into his routine of asking for charitable giving. But Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze on him and said, Look at us. Maybe because he put his head down and was like, Alms, please, alms, please. And they draw his attention up. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive a good amount of money from these guys. The first thing I want you to see here is Peter and John are going yet again. Truly, this is the first dynamic duel ever found within the Scriptures. Now, the second one, of course, being Batman and who? Robin, although they're not in Scriptures, all right? Kapow! How many here know what I'm doing right there? Anyone at all? See, those of you who are young and hip, you don't understand the TV we had to go through. All right. Way back when, when, they, when someone punched someone, there wasn't the sound effects. They would just go to a screen and it would say, kapow. All right. Peter and John are the first dynamic duel. By the way, they owned a fishing company together before they met Jesus Christ. After that, they were the two that Jesus sent to make preparation for the Last Supper. They were also the only two that followed Jesus to the high priest's house when he was arrested. By the way, they were the, only, they were the first two to visit the empty tomb of Jesus. These guys do a lot of things together. They travel together a lot. In fact, you're going to see it in Acts chapter 4. You're going to see it in chapter 19. You're going to see it in chapter 8. These two are connected at the hip in ministry. And so Peter looks at, at John and says, shall we go to the temple? So why are they going to the temple? Let's ask ourselves that. What we see here is this. This is probably our first application, although shallow as it may be, important as it is. Because of their devotion, here it is. Remember the community of the church. Because of the devotion to the scriptures, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Hopefully, if you've been here for the last few weeks, those four articles, the, 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 are filling your mind right now about how important it is to cultivate these things. They are now spilling in to the community because the greatest evangelism we will ever have is to live transformed lives for Jesus Christ. This, ver this verse affirms that the early church is still reaching out to its Jewish neighbors and community. Here it is. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. And that is exactly what Peter and John are doing. So the question that rises to the top is, do we spill out into our community and are we fishers of men? In fact, they head to the temple strategically. Is that a word? Did I say that correctly? Strategic, strategery, all right? That's a throwback to George Bush, all right? Strategery is in place here. Because they're just not heading to the temple because it's a convenient time for them. They are heading to the temple at the busiest time of the day. At the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, if you have your Old Testament with you, this is 3 o'clock p.m. Ninth hour is 3 o'clock p.m. my bedtime psalms chapter 55 verse 17 tells us that there are three distinct hours of the day when people would go to the temple and pray during each day they did it at nine in the morning which is called the third hour they did it at noon which is called the sixth hour and they did it at 3 p.m which is called the ninth hour okay 
Of these three times of prayer, the ninth hour was by far the busiest time of the day. And for several reasons, but I'll highlight at least two of them. First, people could tend to get there after a day's work. The sun is going down. There's not a lot of electricity in Jerusalem at this time. When the sun goes down, the day is over. 3 p.m. was a good time that after a long day of work, you would head to the temple for prayer. All right, after a day's work. Now, the second time is because this is also the hour, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., that they did what was called the evening sacrifice. This is the only time during the day they would do the specific sacrifice. So you could go when there was a sacrifice and you got work in for the day, which kind of interesting enough, the ninth hour, which 3 p.m., was the very same time that Jesus cried out the words, it is finished. When Jesus became the evening sacrifice, if you will, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in the temple they were having an evening sacrifice. Well, outside of the city, the true evening sacrifice, Jesus Christ, was being crucified. We see that in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he says, It is finished. Oh, what a beautiful, unmatched depth of the Scriptures. This may have been why the, the ninth hour, three o'clock, was especially precious to early Christians in the new church. So the dynamic duel, who, who knows who the true evening sacrifice is during the busiest time of the day, spill out in the streets to do some sermon preparation. They go to the temple at 3 p.m. when it is most busy. I want you to see it here. I want you to see people entering the temple through the front gate, which is called the beautiful gate. Of all the gates in the temple, this is the only one that, that was made out of solid bronze. The, other one, the others were coated in silver and in gold along the sides, but the one in the front was solid bronze and was by far the most expensive gate in all of the temple, at least the entry gates, and they called it the beautiful gate. So they're going in there, and they're, they're, Peter and John, the dynamic duel, is flowing with the crowd. We've all been in crowds large enough where you just kind of walk in with the crowd, you follow the current, and you, you try not to upset things. And they are slowly making their way into the temple. The evening sacrifice, if you could use your imagination, the scent of that burnt animal is going up. Like I always like, my one of my favorite scents in all the world is burning leaves. Anyone else love burning leaves? Am I alone on that? This has nothing to do with the passage, all right? But I want you to just, that, that smell of that evening sacrifice is filling the temple and, and it's crowded and they're moving in. Well, truly, the church is spilling in to the community. And Peter has a message to, to give. And he will kill two birds with one stone on the way in at three o'clock in the afternoon. First, he will give an amazing sign and wonder that he speaks on behalf of God by performing a sign and a wonder. We talked about that last Sunday evening when we dug deeper into this text. He's going to, to give a sign and a wonder that God is author, has given him the authority to speak for him by healing this lame man. And at the same time, he will use this miracle as the most incredible object lesson that the early church has. In fact, did you know this is the very first miracle in the early church? I believe it's one of the only ones performed within the city limits of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And so he's going to create an object lesson that, uh, that is going to be about Christ's salvation as he gives a sermon to the community here. All right? So with that in mind, he, said, he goes and he says, A man who has been lame from his mother's womb is being carried along. The first thing I want you to see is this. The man is born this way. This man is born this way. Now before we go any further, I need you to understand, this is not just a simply a miracle. It is an object lesson about what salvation can do in our lives that is about to happen here. He is born this way. And he could do nothing of his own ability to change it. In fact, everyone knew this man's face, if not his name. Scripture tells us that this man is in his 40s at this time. We find that in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, that he's 40 years of age and he's been coming to this same place every day, year after year after year after year. This is not the first time the crowds have seen him. By the way, this is not the first time Peter and John have seen him because Peter and John have been going into the temple daily since they've been there. They know this man. They may know him by name. They certainly would know him by face. It's one of the reasons Peter and John pick him for this object lesson. Remember, this miracle now is not simply just about physical healing. It is a picture of spiritual healing. My friends, are we not born lost in our sins with nothing of our own ability to change our condition? Amen, church? This is a picture of who we are before Christ. So I want you to hold on to that for right now. All right? Just hold on to it. And remember that Peter is making himself an object lesson for the sermon he is about to give when he gets into the temple. Now, with that in mind, holding that, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. What Peter, here, grab this here, what better time to be set at the temple at 3 p.m.? And just to make sure that you're listening, you're, you're, you're following me here, why would this be the best time to be set at the gate of the temple at 3 p.m.? Why is this the best time? Talk to me. Anyone? It's the busiest. Also, he's likely not a morning person, all right? No, I'm just teasing. I don't know about you, but I, 3 p.m., would, if I could change the church schedule, oh, sweet Lord, all right? I am not a morning person. But at 3 p.m., they bring this guy in, in his 40s, lame from birth, and they set him down at the front. This is, this is a high real estate area for beggars, all right? At the busiest time of the day, in a place... now. This guy may be lame, but he is not dumb, all right? In a place where the, where, where the poor was considered, giving to the poor was considered a merit, meritorious, did I say that right? A good thing, all right? A good thing that brought on God's favor within first century Jewish culture, all right? In fact, we see it here. In order to beg alms from those who are entering the temple at the busiest time of the day, Now, the giving of alms, which is charitable giving to the poor, was a responsibility that Judaism took very seriously as an expression of compassion that God honored. You'll find examples of it in Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 6, and all over the Gospels. 
In fact, if you have a Catholic Bible on your lap today, and if you do, we'll talk later, but if you have a Catholic Bible, or here it is, a King James Bible that was printed prior than prior to 1885, if you have an original 1611 King James Bible that was printed be, before 1885, you would have some extra books in your Bible that were tucked in between the New and the Old Testament called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is a, is a beautiful name that means not real, not genuine, or unknown books. And they are tucked into the Catholic Bible or the original 1611. Now, of those Apocrypha books, there is one called Tobit. All right? Now, while not part of the inspired Word of God, it does give us insight into early culture, early Jewish culture mindset. In fact, I'm going to read to you from Tobit chapter 4, verse 10. In fact, yeah, it's up there. It says this. Now, this is ingrained into the conscience of early first century Jews as they go into the temple during the evening sacrifice at the busiest time of the day for charitable giving to the poor delivers one from death. And keeps you from entering into darkness. Now, if that is ingrained into you since you were a young lad or gal in the synagogue in Jerusalem, how many here are throwing money at the poor on the way into the temple? Anyone at all? Would you like to enter into darkness? No, I would not. All right. Would you like to be outside the favor of God? No, I would not. Do we see now and affirm this? This guy is not dumb. Amen? He knows exactly where he is and what he is doing and what to expect. Now, on top of that, he is going to mark Peter and John. Why is he going to mark Peter and John? Well, we're going to have to remember last week's context. All right? We'll get there in just a moment. All of this is building up to an application to our lives spiritually. But first, we have to unpack what's going on here. So this is really interesting. So what I need you to see here is this. This man be lame. This man be lame. Yep. But he is no fool. He positions himself at the most expensive gate of the temple, all right, during the busiest time of the day, where people who pass by believe giving to the poor will deliver them from death and staying in the good graces of God. There is no better place to be. Now, with all that in mind, he saw Peter and John. Now, Peter and John are not no names in Jerusalem at this time. Peter and John had just completely dominated all the pools in Jerusalem, baptizing how many people? Anyone at all? 3,000 people. Pentecost, tongues, all right? Native languages. 50 days ago, talking about whom you have crucified. Last week, they shared all things in common. And, And as people had need, what did the early Christians do? They sold what? Talk to me. They sold property. They sold possessions. They brought it into the church. They gave it to the apostles and they they distributed it out as to those who had need. Peter and John are not uh, an unknown personality in Jerusalem. He marks them. Notice the beggar sees Peter and John in the flow of the crowd. They look like good prospects to get money, as they should. 
Because Peter and John are responsible for a good deal of money during this time. They look like good prospects. So he goes into his routine. It says right there, likely, his, and I'm speculating here, but the context kind of lends to this. His head goes down, his hand goes out, and he starts saying, alms for the poor. Tobit chapter 4. That's how I would have said it. Alms <laughs> for the poor. Tobit chapter 4. Do you want to go into darkness? Here you go, all right? And he puts his head down, he puts his hands out. They looked like good prospects to get money from, and they were. Which makes us wonder in a minute when they say silver and gold, I have none. Huh? Okay, we'll get there in a minute. So he goes into his routine for asking money. Money. There is a practical point about the human condition here that I want to stop for just a moment. And by the way, this practical point has seeped into the church that has forgotten what their message is. He thought that the greatest human need was what? Talk to me, church. Money. He thought that the greatest human need was resources. That his greatest human need was an easier life. How many are glad the church is not peddling that drivel? Amen? Huh. He sought mercy in the form of money. Mercy in the form of, of, of equality and, and, and getting things. And he saw, he saw mercy in the form of money that the greatest, the greatest need for mercy is, was in money rather than, here it is, rather than salvation. Church, the condition of man from birth is to see things so earthly, so temporary, and so shallow. We think that our greatest need is for a better life. Now, I want to be careful here. Better, it's important. It is important to help people. It is important to see their needs. It is important to meet those. But the reality is our greatest need is eternal life. Amen? That is our greatest need. It doesn't mean that we go, we see someone hungry and we give them a stone. All right, that's not what I'm talking about here, but let's not give them something without offering the greatest thing along with it. Helping people is important. Eternal life is supreme. And then Peter saw him. The tables are about to be turned. Not, by the way, not for the first time. Peter knows this guy. In fact, Peter knows exactly why he's going to choose this guy. Peter and John walked by this guy many times before. They could have known him by name. Let's give him a name. Give me a name. Give me a good first century Jewish name that would have been at the gate, at the bronze gate called Beautiful, on Tobit chapter 4, verse 10, that his friends brought him there since he was 40 years old. For 40 years, what's his name? Give me a name. Tom? Okay, Tom. All right, yeah, Thomas, all right? We'll call him Thomas. They know Thomas. They know this guy, maybe by name, not by name, but they know him by face. And they went in because they went into the temple often. We know that in early in Acts, it says that they went there daily. Jesus went there daily during the 40 days. He was there. But this day, this beggar will be used for more than just fulfilling Tobit chapter 4. He will be an object lesson. He will bring a message here. This is huge. Notice this act is far, is far more than just an object lesson of church's social conscience. A lot of times, uh, 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 teachers will just pull this out of context outside from what Peter is going to do, and we hold it up and we go, this is what we're supposed to do. There is a very specific context here. 
It's far more than just an object lesson of the social conscience the church should have. As important as it is to be conscious, it is not the primary focus. Maybe Peter jabbed his friend, his dynamic dual Robin friend, and said, everyone knows this guy. He would be perfect. He will both be our sign and wonder to affirm that what we are about to teach is from God, and he would also be a perfect object lesson fulfilling the Old Testament. Oh, getting ahead of myself, but it's so beautiful here. They are about to teach from the Old Testament in Isaiah, the, the, the prophet through the, the lens of Christology, the salvation is upon the land of Israel. Now grab this here. I got a little sidetracked here because I get excited about this because I'm a nerd. So Peter and John looks at this man, and collectively it appears that while his head is down, okay, that they say, otherwise, why would they say this? Look at us! And he raises his eyes up. These pillars of this new thing called church. Followers of the way at this point in time. He's going to get a large sum of money here. In fact, they're responsible for large sums of money. Did you know? I'm going to grab this here. Let us not pretend that this is the only lame man in the temple, by the way. Lame men are all over the place. They are asking for alms. Their friends brought them there. Now remember, this is more than just an object lesson on a social conscience. It is an object lesson on the, on the reality of what salvation is in our lives. This man is healed while many, 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 many are not. Imagine that you're one of them that were not. What would you say? Talk to me. Peter and, 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 and John go, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk, and you're not that one. What are you going to say? Talk to me. Huh? Why not me? What's going on here? There's a picture here greater than just a good act that, that Peter will unpack next week when we get there. But here it is. This man is healed while many others are not. Now we could dive deep into these weeds but let's keep it simple and true based to the subject matter here. This man is going to be healed for one reason alone. Here it is. Unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. Did you know that you did nothing of your own to draw the favor of God? He does not save you or me because we were better than the others that were around. He does not save you and I because of the great potential that is lurking beneath us. He does not save you and I because of anything that we have to offer. He saves us because of His unmerited favor. Not of works which we have done, but according to His what church? His grace that we are saved. This, of all things, should keep the church's ego down. All right? We are not a collection of the amazing. Can I get a witness at all on that? In fact, normally, I'm not going to go there. All right? Peter is about to give this man in a completely new, whole, transformed life because of undeserved favor. 
which is precisely what the miracle is going to represent when Peter gives his sermon in verses 11 through 26. But imagine what the beggar was expecting. Mercy in the form of what, church? Money, alms, told it for. Can you see the beggar extending his, his little jar, maybe, maybe both hands, maybe, boy, these guys are from the church, maybe my, my pocket here too. He's ready to receive the gift. Saying, alms, please, alms. Verses 6 through 10. But Peter said to him, have you ever been given an answer you do not want? Anyone at all? That's called going to counseling, by the way. All right. <laughs> Where you want a quick and easy fix and the counselor, you know, tells you an answer that's going to lead to health, but it's going to be a long, arduous journey. Peter says, I don't have what you want. Really? Well, we'll get there in a moment. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Huh, that's interesting. Walk. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up immediately to his feet and his ankles were strengthened. He leapt, he stood up straight, he's leaping, praising God. Everyone saw him because they know this man. He's 40 years old. He's been there for decades. Tobit chapter 4, all that stuff that took note of him. Of course they would take note of him because Peter and John are not dumb. They know who they're choosing. And he goes into the temple at the beautiful gate, begging for alms and filled with wonder and amazement of all that had happened to him. Here's where we wrap it up. He says, I do not possess silver or gold. Why then, if you were the beggar, what would you say to Peter and John if they said, look at us, and then said, oh, by the way, we have nothing? What would you say to Peter and John? Keep on moving, all right? I got some stuff to get here. Have you ever been disappointed with an answer? These are not the words this man wants to hear. By the way, the gospel is not very often what this world wants to hear. They want quick fixes. These are not the words this man wants to hear in the, in the teaching of one of the greatest theologians I've ever heard. Oh, what was his name? Show me the money. What was his name? Gubad. Well, I didn't watch that movie. I read the transcripts, but <laughs> show me Cuban Jr. Cuba? Cuba. Cuba. He's a com Cubic Jr. Cubic Jr. I forget his name. Show me the money. Our human eyes don't tend to see eternal value. A couple of points here. Tannenhell, who's a gifted teacher, says this. How could they say they had no money? The, the lame man marked them. He sees them coming. There are no secret entity in Jerusalem at this time. In fact, the further we get into Acts, we see that the entire city was fearful of the church. Last week, we studied that they were selling property, using the proceeds to help one another. Also, the apostles were the custodians of the church treasury at this time. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, all right, it tells us this. That there was not a needy person among the church. For all who were owners of lands and houses were selling them and bringing all of the money of that sales to lay them at the feet of the apostles. Which is something I think the church should do today. All right? I'm joking. All right? 
They're laying the money at the feet of Peter and John. And then Peter and John would distribute to each as someone had need. So how can he say, I don't have money? Well, it may be very simply that they had no money with them at the time. That's a possible answer. But they certainly had money available to them. Here's the point. The apostles may not be in a position to share these funds to anyone they want to. These funds are earmarked. They're budgeted for the relief of the members of the church. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Small peripheral practical observation I want to bring up here very, very briefly, and then we're going to go right back into the text. Here's a practical point. Very rarely is leadership free to simply do what they want. We, people who are not in leadership tend to see things very black and white, but that is not the world that leadership lives in. I would, I would love to pastor Trinity where every decision is black and white, right and wrong. How many here would love that place? Amen? But that is not where we live. We live in a world of gray. Leadership must function with integrity in the complexity of multiple competing virtues at the same time. It's easy to make simple accusations when you're not responsible for a multitude of diverse needs and dynamics. Leadership does not make decisions in silos. We have to conduct ourselves in a way that is faithful to the whole farm. And sometimes the health of the farm may not be the best thing for the individual silo. But here's what I want to make clear. The church should show compassion. Should show compassion to the community in visible ways. We need to help the needy. We need to help the poor, the downtrodden, the widows, the sick, the imprisoned, and etc. But there is a spiritual truism that comes to the surface here. And here it is. We can only give away that which is truly ours to begin with. We can only give that which we own to begin with. And the primary thing that the church must give out to others is Jesus Christ. So he says this, But what I do have to you, I give in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Now notice what happens next in this object lesson. And immediately, his feet and his ankles were strengthened, Now let us remember what Peter is doing here. He is confirming through the miraculous signs and wonders that he speaks on behalf of God and at the same time creating an object lesson for the plan of salvation that he will give when he goes through that beautiful gate. I want you to notice the words here. Now this lame man may not be dumb, but neither is Peter. He's done a lot of growing up. Peter's been studying his Old Testament. Check this out. I want you to notice the words, with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. Peter Peter does not just do this on impulse, by the way. All right? He just doesn't do this on impulse. Peter does this because by doing it, it will fulfill Old Testament teaching. You see, the Old Testament teached that when you see a lame man leaping like a deer, it's beautiful. 
When you see a lame man leaping like a deer, it is a sign that God's salvation is upon you. In fact, Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6 tells us, Then when you, shall, you, you will see the lame leaping like a deer. Now we just got done that just a few, few, a day or two ago, Peter gave a message at Pentecost that said, The last days are upon us. Salvation is available. It's here. The last days are here. Oh, how many here think that Peter might know his Old Testament and he knows exactly what he is doing as he enters the temple to deliver the plan of salvation to this community? He picks a lame man leaping like a deer. Oh, what a beautiful picture this is. Look at, in fact, this is not lost on the Jewish community. They are very astute on the Old Testament. And he entered the temple with them, walking and what church? What is he doing? Leaping. Luke is making sure we get the connection here. He is leaping. He is leaping. He is praising God. Oh, don't miss this. A lame person was never allowed to go into the temple. What a beautiful picture of salvation. You can't be lame and go into the presence of God. We find it in Leviticus 21, 2 Samuel 5. This man has been lame since birth. People know his name. They have been walking by him for years and giving him alms to stay in favor with God. Tobit chapter 4. And now he gets to enter the temple for the very first time. That alone would be a spectacle. Now he's leaping. A lame man is leaping. Isaiah 535. He is leaping for for joy like a deer. And he's clinging to the robes of Peter and John. That's verse 11. It's not up there. He's clinging to the robes, jumping up and down. And all of the early Baptists were saying, tell this guy to calm down. He's drawing attention to himself. Little message there. Oh, the fulfillment in Jesus is exploding before their eyes. Do you see? This is far more than just some cheap example of do-goodism. It transcends veggie tales. As a lame man in his 40s is leaping, that alone is a miracle, all right? 40-year-old leaping up and down. What's your name? You're a colonoscoper. What's your name again? Ryan. Ryan's in his 40s. Ryan, come up here and leap around for us, all right? And we're not going to do that. Because what are we going to do? After he leaps around at 40-some years of age, where is he going next? Talk to me, church. The ER. That's right. (laughs) He's leaping around. People know him. The fulfillment in the 40s, leaping like a deer. And look at who this man is praising. It's not Peter. Look what Peter did. Look what Peter did. Look what John did. No. Who's he praising? Talk to me, church. God. He's made a connection in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's praising God. And all the Peter saw, and, and all the people saw him walking and leaping and praising God. He knew this in, instantaneous, here it is, un, unmerited favor of healing came in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the sent one of God. Oh, this is going to be a good sermon. 
Half the time when pastors preach, we just need to find a good example and we'll build the message around the example. Which, by the way, is bleh. Don't ever find that, all right? But man, sometimes there's this beautiful example that just presents himself. Peter's got it here. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Not just, filled, not just physically, but man, Old Testament is exploding. This man's in the temple. He once was lame, unmerited favor, nothing on his own. The whole purpose was that this man's miracle would draw the attention of the crowd to a single divine truth. Ah! This is centered around a single divine truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all of it. It's all of it. The whole purpose was to draw attention to one divine truth. Oh, my friends, don't let this picture of spiritual truth slip by. The first miracle of the early church is a picture of what Jesus does for us upon salvation. Like this man who was helpless from birth, we too are spiritually helpless. Like this man who can do nothing to earn his healing, we too are spiritually bankrupt. Like this man who did nothing to deserve his healing, we too are saved by God's unmerited favor. Like this man who was instantly healed, we too are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Like this man who could not stop worshiping, we too who know Christ cannot go back to our old ways. Oh, hear this today, my friends. There is a lot of good that we can do in the community with our hands and our feet and our wallets and our time but all of those combined aren't near as powerful than being truly transformed in the name of Jesus Christ what kind of crowd would Peter and John have drawn what example of eternal value would they point to if all they did was give this man money so cheap and not a transformed life instantly for the glory of God. I think this may be one of the greatest shortcomings of the American church today. We want to point to all the good things that we do in the community. And by the way, this is a good thing. But we want to point to all of those good things. But if we are not truly transformed through the salvation of Jesus Christ, what do those good things point to? I like verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them. Just picture that. First time in the temple. This man is clinging to the robes of Peter, leaping like a deer. Let that all explode. Isaiah 35. Praising God through Jesus Christ. There is no greater of salvation than this right now. Church, if we want to have a strong testimony, then let us leap like deers in absolute joy at the unmerited, soul-saving, life-transforming, instantaneously saving power of Jesus Christ. People will be curious about a truly transformed life. Let us just not speak about the truth, but rather let us be a living example of salvation. Amen? Spill into the community. And now the stage is set. 
Peter is given a powerful sign and an unbelievable object lesson is clinging to his robe. And the church cannot believe what they see. A 40-year-old beggar completely made new. And Peter will say, you see this guy? Jesus can do for you spiritually what he just did to this man physically. But that's next week. Right now, we spent 40 minutes just observing the sermon preparation of Peter and John. Next week, we'll watch it explode. God's Word is worth our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your your beautiful Word. May we be transformed lives because of Your unmerited favor. Father, I pray that Your Word would be sharp, that it would transform us. Dismiss us with Your blessings. In Your Son's precious name I pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed. Go Blue Deacon Group. You have a fellowship.